Morning, church. Great job, Anderson. I know. Open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 19, if you would. You guys came to sing this morning. What a great, great morning. Thank you, Ray. Thank you, praise team. Awesome job. Before we get started, I'd like to ask us to bow. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning. Oh, wow. Thank you for our brother Art and his thoughts for communion today. Um, we all have been betrayers. We all, Father, have um, turned our backs on you in the time of need. When you would like for us to stand strong, Father, we were weak. We're not the only ones that come confessing that today, Father. Zion Lutheran Church, I know, would admit it too. We join them in our confession of weakness to the one who is our strength. And we are stunned that you would give the gift that you have given in order to make possible these prayers mattering, these songs mattering. Thank you, thank you, thank you, God, for um, paying the ultimate price and not just sending your son, but giving him. In his name we praise you and everyone said. Ted Danson of Cheers fame said, human beings spend 80% of their existence waiting for something to be over. <laughs> I hit a nerve with me this week. Because it's true. Employees can't wait for the work week to be over. A woman with child can't wait for the pregnancy to be over. Inmates can't wait for their incarceration to be over. We can't wait till the test is over, the root canal's over, the chemo, the time in the cast, the braces, the year in reviews, the sitting still for the sermon is over. Because we are convinced that there's a better life on the other side of whatever it is that we're finishing. Jesus knows how that feels. I have to believe the days of the one who was the way, the truth, and the life walking among us had to be pretty good days while he was on the earth. And yet John records there was something in his life he couldn't wait to be finished with, his death, specifically as we know it, his execution on a cross. And who in the world would blame him? <laughs> From what little we know about such a death, we understand how someone might want to be done with that. And no disciple of Jesus had a better view of it than John. The one who writes the gospel we've been studying for the better part of 2018. We refer to it as John's gospel, but the author's only moniker in the book, his only handle in the book, is the one whom Jesus loved. At least five times he refers to himself this way in telling his version of the life story of Jesus. And we get it. Knowing that you are being loved by the creator of the world, for at least some, that's identity enough. So it's not too surprising that when John gets to the end of telling how his friend met his end, John lets us know Jesus may have died at the hands of an executioner, but listen to me, he was no victim. No, listen to John. He was no victim. It's in John's gospel, Jesus says, nobody takes my life from me. Nobody. I lay it down of my own accord. It's not how a victim talks. It's in John's gospel when they come to arrest him in the garden. Jesus doesn't fall to the ground from intimidation from them. No, it's the soldiers who do. There's no record of anybody mocking Jesus in John's gospel. Nobody carries his cross. There's no crying out asking, why have you forsaken me? In John's life story of Jesus, the Son of God isn't losing anything to anyone. He's securing something for everyone. That's not how victims act. <laughs> on a cross of all places. 
Jesus is making sure Scripture gets fulfilled. David had prophesied in the Psalms that the Messiah's garments would be gambled for. And they were, so John wrote it down. They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. He watched the dice game going on. David prophesied that the one who was living drink would ask for a drink just before he died, and sure enough, he did. John writes later, knowing that everything now had been finished so the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. Now, both of those might seem like you have minor details, trivial details, but the Savior of the world wouldn't leave them out, couldn't leave them out, because to Jesus, they were pivotal, because they were scriptural. And then, while hanging on a cross, Jesus had to take care of one more detail. He makes sure his mom had a home. From the cross, hanging on a cross, he makes sure that she's taken care of. In the moment when anyone would have understood if he would just have been thinking about himself for a second, just about what he needed for the moment, he's thinking about what she needed. And so John wrote this down because it was probably said to him as much with Jesus' eyes as it was his words. Woman, here is your son. And he said to the disciple, here's your mom. And from that time on, the disciple took her into his home. (laughs) This guy amazes me. Even in his greatest weakness of this world, Jesus is still showing a depth of love that I think is out of this world. It's just not normal. And when his assignment is complete, we know it, because his last words reveal it. Say these words with me. It is is finished. I may not know a lot about you, but I know on some occasion you've said those words. (laughs) And you felt the same joy that Jesus probably felt, the same peace, the same sense of completeness, if not accomplishment, he felt in that moment. I know it came through a lot of pain. I know it came in the midst of a very shame-filling moment, but make no mistake about it, he was glad it was finished. You surely know the pleasure of going after a difficult task a trying task, and it finally, finally being completed. And the simple joy of standing back and saying, done, finished. I don't know what it was for you, but on at least one occasion, it for me was placing the last package of meat wrapped in the freezer from a 900-pound elk. It was (laughs) finished when the last guest had left the last wedding that hopefully the sportsmen will ever have to pay for. We spoke those words shortly after our girls graduated from college, and then we said them again whenever we paid for that college, finally. And I am looking forward to uttering those words again when, Lord willing, I've completed a four-hour seminar that I'm giving here at the Dietert Center Thursday. What was I thinking, Gail said, when I said yes to that? I'm thinking right now, I can't wait till it (laughs) is finished. Honored to be asked to do it. We're doing crucial conversations. It's how to navigate those tough moments in your life whenever there's a disagreement and there's high stakes and high emotions and you don't really know what to say. I was hoping four people would sign up. Forty have signed up. And I can't wait till it is finished. Why was it finished? 
what was going on, that it was finished. The first thing is this, an overwhelming death was completed. There was no lethal injection in Jesus' day. There was no attempt whatsoever to make execution less painful. Why would they? Rome needed a deterrent to prevent criminals from being criminals. The whole point of crucifixion was to make it hurt as much as possible. Because for anybody who sought to defy Rome, its authorities wanted to make it clear a painful price would be paid. And any practiced execution of the day would have concurred that that crucifixion, that way of executing people, it was the worst. Seneca, a member of the Senate in Rome, wrote that he had seen many crucifixions of many different types. He said, some placed their victims upside down, their head to the ground. Some impaled their private parts. Others stretched out their arms on the gibbet. That cross beam of a cross or the cross beam sometimes of a gallows used for what we would know as a cross. The fact is Jesus most likely died right side up since all four of the gospel writers agreed that there was a sign above his head. But if that was the case, Jesus probably suffocated to death. The only way to breathe suspended on a cross with its nail spikes in your wrist or your hands was to pull up with those hands or wrists and to push up from those nails that were in the feet and to breathe. And then you would have to let yourself down if, because the pain was just too excruciating. And then you have to do it again to get another breath. I don't know how many breaths you've had probably in the last minute, 30, 40. How'd you like to do that every time that your body needed to breathe? I don't care how strong you are, after a while, your body just couldn't keep up with that. And in Jesus' case, he didn't either. Now, if the accused didn't die by suffocation, then usually he died from blood loss. Jesus could have probably died from that as well. But however he died, I can, I can assure you of this, death came as a friend. Not an enemy. He had many enemies that day. When he died, you could have held a feather under his nose. You could have pressed a finger against the big vein in his neck. You could have stuck a spear in his heart. And the conclusion would have been the same in all three cases. Jesus was dead. He didn't faint. didn't swoon. He died. Another thing that was finished was an overwhelming debt was paid. God has revealed to us that the wages of sin is death. You wouldn't know that if God didn't tell you. So he wanted to make it clear what you deserve for your sin is death. What you deserve for your rebellion, what you deserve for your willingly disregarding my, my laws about how to treat yourself and each other and me, what you deserve for that is death. He's been very clear and so he's revealed that. You don't have to believe it, but he's at least revealed it to us. That's the state we live in if we've rebelled, if we've been that betrayer that Ark talked about a few moments ago. But it's not physical death that's going to be the consequence of my sin. <laughs> if it was, I'm paying my own sin debt, thank you. As far as I know, as of October the 20th, 2018, the death rate for humans is still hovering right around 100%, just like it always has. Jesus' passing included death. But his passing was marked by a greater death than just him quitting breathing and his heart quitting beating. There was a death he experienced there that you don't have to experience, but you will if you don't trust in this death. And it is the death of separation from God. He had never experienced that before in his life. He had been one with God since the beginning. But in a moment, all of a sudden, your sin that you deserved was placed on him. 
And John doesn't record it, but Jesus cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. All the other gospel writers include that phrase because they want us to understand in that moment our sin debt was being paid. Paul tries to put it this way, God made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin so that I could become the righteousness of God. Only a love that was out of this world could pull that off. One of the biggest surprises of our trip to Mount Rushmore was the fact that this is going to stun you probably too. 90% of the rock that was removed to complete that four-faced project was done through dynamite. 90% was done through dynamite. Predetermined explosions by the thousands were orchestrated to break apart the stubborn granite in those black hills. I bring that up because your salvation required as much. Drastic measures were needed to break through your stubborn heart. Teaching wouldn't do it. Laying on of hands wouldn't do it. Memorizing scripture wouldn't do it. Prayer wouldn't do it. God knew before he ever made man that if he gave him free will, there was the opportunity that he would most likely take to decide he made a better sovereign than God did. And a mass of hardness when he made that choice would form in his heart that would separate the creator from the created. And in order to penetrate that hardness of heart, he knew it would take something stronger than all of those religious things, teachings and laying on of hands and praying. He knew self-sacrificing love would be the dynamite of choice. It's the only thing it would cut through. In John chapter 15, verse 13, Jesus said, No greater love can a man have than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends. Now, he declares that on the night before he's crucified. He explains it to his disciples as much as he possibly could. But then he went out and demonstrated. And in less than 24 hours, that little project was finished. Through the cross, you were redeemed, friend. An overwhelming debt was paid. But number three, when he finished it... An outdated religious system was retired. Study the Old Testament, and the one clear takeaway for even the lightest reading of it is this. There was a system that God had put in place. It was made up of a religious place called the temple. And there you had a very clear division of what was clean and unclean, holy and unholy. It was tended to. It was taken care of by religious priests who carried out rituals far too often with their hands and not their hearts. And then there was this whole idea of religious sacrifice that required a lamb or a goat or a calf to be an acceptable substitute for a surrendered heart. And it all took place for a time, Scripture says. Just a time. But listen to me, church. Please hear me. God is done with religious places and religious people and religious rituals as the basis for what He wants most. A relationship with you. That's why our vision is what it is, because this new covenant that we've been invited to is to invite people into a relationship with Jesus. And the Spirit is the only one that can make that possible through this cross and through what we'll talk about next week, the resurrection. John makes it clear in his gospel, however, that at the same hour that Jesus dies, the slaughter of the Passover lambs is taking place. One more year, Habib and his wife bring their lamb to the priests. They kill the lamb. The blood is caught and it's poured out on the altar. Outside the temple in the courtyard are the dead bodies of those lambs and calves and goats. And they're cleaned according to the law of Moses. All the while the Levites are singing praises to God. The joy of the Lord will be my strength. 
Because John wants us to note that at Golgotha, that was not the only place that blood was being shed that day. In both places, the people of God believed that they were doing the will of the Father. And if there was one thing the religious authorities and the political authorities agreed upon, it was that putting Jesus to death was God's will. And you know what, as it turns out, it's the only thing they had right. But Jesus was the last lamb. He was the last lamb of God who would die for his people, and it mattered. The Hebrew writer said, with this, lack, with this last sacrifice, with his sacrifice, <laughs> I don't get all this, but here's what's announced. Things are changing. Things are changing. Under the old system, the Hebrew writer said, the blood of bulls, goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Could do that. Just think, he writes, how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciousness from the sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. And that is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and his people so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised to them. Jesus said it, not me. It was finished the old way. But there was one more thing that was finished that day. An overdue reunion. Jesus was coming home. Now the distance was mostly physical. When Jesus came to earth, the relationship of the Father and Son was every bit as real. Never was it, un, never was it broken. But with the putting on of the earth suit, some type of emptying, some type of difference took place in that relationship. Paul, through the, the letter to the Philippians, says this. Christ Jesus, though he was God did not think of equality with God as something to be held on to, to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. When Jesus came here, things weren't the same. Heaven wasn't the same. Earth certainly wasn't the same. Now, their relationship wasn't the same either. Not like they had known and never more in that moment we just described a few moments ago when sin, the innocent one, had sin placed on him. Not just a sin or a couple of sins, but all of the sin of the world. Again, where the other gospel writers have him saying, why have you forsaken me? When he had said those words, he cried out, as John notes, it is finished. A debt was paid and a reunion had begun. Now we all know that's a good thing. But when it was finished then, when people witnessed it then, it was horrific. It was dead. It was over. Not a person on the globe anticipated the resurrection. And for some it was flat out too embarrassing. And so they said, I pass. If that's God's Messiah, pass. They didn't want any part of it. They were going to hold out for a strong God, a fierce God, a God who, who would not dare get so close to sinners as Jesus had gotten close to sinners and certainly wouldn't die like one. And so some passed on Jesus being Savior material. And the question that I want to ask this morning is, will you? So there you have it. When it was done, most in Jerusalem slept well. Caiaphas, the high priest, slept well knowing that once again he had outmaneuvered Pilate once again, he had leveraged his influence to get Rome to do his bidding. 
Pilate slept well knowing that Passover was finally behind him. The city would be empty of all these Jewish religious nuts that had come from all over the globe, and they would be going home. In Rome, the emperor Tiberius, he slept well because he didn't know any of this was going on. He had no idea of the events that were taking place. And to him, it was always as it had been. And to most people, it was all it always would be because everybody expected Jesus to do what dead people usually do, stay dead. You've heard me describe it. I'm going to invite you to witness it with me. So they took charge of Jesus. He went out carrying his cross and came to the place of the skull, as it is called. In Hebrew, it is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And they also crucified two other men, one on each side, with Jesus between them. Pilate wrote a notice and had it put on the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, is what he wrote. people read it because the place where Jesus was crucified was not far from the city. The notice was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. The chief priest said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. What I have written stays written. After the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. They also took the robe, which was made of one piece of woven cloth without any seams in it. The soldiers said to one another, let's not tear it. Let's throw dice to see who will get it. This happened in order to make the scripture come true. They divided my clothes among themselves and gambled for my robe. And this is what the soldiers did. Standing close to Jesus' cross were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there. He is your son. Then he said to the disciple, She is your mother. From that time, the disciple took her to live in his home.
Jesus knew that by now everything had been completed. And in order to make the scripture come true, he said, I am thirsty. A bowl was there, full of cheap wine. So a sponge was soaked in the wine, put on a stalk of hyssop, and lifted up to his lips. Jesus drank the wine. It is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. there's a God who would do that for you what is it that he wouldn't do for you now what is it that you need to be finished today bitterness unforgiveness lies shame it can be finished today you'll bring it to him today let's stand and sing church